Welcome. Happy New Year, everyone. 2024, right? Yeah, we're kind of past the whole rush of uh, Christmas and New Year's. I love that time of year, don't get me wrong. But there's something about this, the, the kind of break afterwards that is just a beautiful thing. My brother-in-law says this oftentimes, and, and we visit them periodically. They live in the Nashville area. And he says, um, visitors are like fish. After three days, they begin to stink. And so um, it's great to have family in town, and it's great to see them off as well. And so uh, I love it, and it's great to kind of be able to kind of settle down into kind of a new year. Um, and I kind of like this time of year. And so it's great to see all of you here this morning. In case you don't know him, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, we are starting off the year of 2024. And as we did last year and as we have done for previous years as well, we oftentimes take a look at a specific topic, a focus in of a specific topic, and this year is no different. For us this year, our specific topic that we're going to spend the bulk of 2024 on is dealing in, on the topic of the church. And so uh, we are going to be spending a good deal of our time um, just talking about the church, and we're going to be looking at this topic, obviously, through the lens of Scripture. And so we're going to be going through a, a variety of Scripture uh, books, uh, Bible books, uh, as well as passages uh, throughout this coming year. I'm excited for this year. I'm excited for what we'll be talking about. And here's why, for me, I think this is so important for us as a church to look at the topic of church. And some of you, I might get some groans. I understand that. I'm prepared for it, okay? Um, some of you might be, whatever. It's just it runs the gamut. Um, for me, church is absolutely important. And I hope you understand me saying this. I am biased, okay? I'm openly biased about church. I truly am. If I wasn't, I think there'd be cause for concern, right? Right? It'd be like a lawyer who doesn't care about the law. I've got concerns. It'd be like a doctor who doesn't really care about the medical profession. I, I have concerns. Um, and I'm just being openly honest with you all, is that I'm incredibly biased about the church. And by the way, I have good reason to be openly biased about it. I, I love the church. I love the local church. I love this church. And, 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 I, and I have reasons for that. Partly, it's, it's my upbringing. I found a home in the church very early on. In fact, I was kind of reminiscing about that this morning as we were singing, in that I remember in the earliest memories I have of going to the Catholic church with my grandmother. And we would go on Saturday nights, and God bless my grandmother, she would take me, my brother, and my sister, and we were very young, and we would sit near the cry room. There were times we'd have to sit in the cry room. You know what a cry room is, right? It's the room that we have kind of that, that there's a room right there. It is, in my time of being here, that has never been used as a crime room. I am told that that was that room designed for, um, but we have never used it. Obviously, it's a room that is somewhat soundproof-ish, that's piped in the service, that's glass so you can see out, and people can see in at seeing what is going on with that family back there kind of thing. Um, but nonetheless, my earliest memories of that, and just looking at the stained glass windows of that Catholic church, and my grandmother would bring us books for the service that we would look at. And I was enthralled with these children's books that talked about heaven, that talked about Jesus, that talked about God, that talked about his creation. And I remember vividly 
the imagery of those things, of those pictures. And I would be looking through that stained glass window at times and the sun would be coming through and I'd be wondering, man, what is heaven like? What is God like? You know, just kind of, you know, wondering about all of these things. And as I got older, at the invitation of a friend, I got involved in a United Methodist church and, and it was a wonderful church. It was, at that time, it was an evangelical, Christ-centered church. And I realized that there is some angst going on in the United Methodist Church today. It breaks my heart. Uh, I get it. But it was a beautiful church. I got to meet Jesus at that church. But more than that, I, 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 I found what I believe was God's calling on my life to go into ministry at that church. It was at that church that I began to first preach. If you can imagine, I mean, and everyone, by the way, I don't care who you are, the first time preaching is an incredibly nerve-wracking experience, right? Amen. Um, and, and it was the same for me. And this was kind of a somewhat semi-formal church, so they had the pulpit that was a big pulpit that you went up into that you could look down on everyone in the, in the, in the church. And um, I, I, would, I, I literally, in many ways, spent my, as much time as I could at this church I, I, in the summertime, every single day, there would be a group of retirees, of men and women who would come together, and they would do projects around the church. By the way, this church was a hundred and some odd years old, four stories. It was a big church building. It was a well-known marker in the town I grew up in. And so it was every, every, every day during the summertime, a group of us kids and, and students at the time I was in youth ministry or youth age, and we would come and we would go around and help these guys do projects around the church and they would make us and have us not make us they never made us um our favorite time was obviously sitting down with coffee and donuts with them which we did often i didn't realize how old they were but we would rest often but nonetheless going up and they would they would have us go and climb up and this was nothing this is a very very low ceiling but in the church where i grew up in the worship center it was an incredibly high ceiling they would have us go up and crawl up in the beams and to do some stuff up there and all that kind of stuff. We did unbelievable stuff that I think nowadays, I think if I ever let my, my mom or my grandmother know what we were doing, I think they would have been appalled at what we were doing because we could have easily have gotten hurt, but we never did. But I loved it. I found a home in the church. The church became my home. It became a place where I found my purpose, my calling to become a pastor. It is the place where I began to have relationships and began to really blossom, I think, as, as, as a disciple of Jesus. I loved learning. I loved being a part of the church. I love the church. I do. Here's another reason why I love the church. And this is going to be the biblical reason. Okay? Because Jesus loves the church. Jesus created the church. The Big C Church is oftentimes known as the Bride of Christ. It is known as, as the one that which is all of a sudden now the one that has been charged with, given the responsibility with, of going out and proclaiming the gospel to the entire world. I read a quote. I don't have it in my notes this morning. I have other quotes I'm going to share with you, but this one quote I'm going to paraphrase. It's not verbatim, so forgive me on this. Is that uh, one author noted that God took a chance by putting the responsibility, in many ways, of the proclamation of the gospel, not necessarily as he has done in the past through his law, not necessarily as he's done in the past through the actual physical presence of his son on this earth, but now through the church that he has created and has empowered through his Holy Spirit fellow believers in going and preaching the gospel to the world. That's a risk. 
Why is that a risk? People. We're fallen, broken people. Let me just say this if you don't already know it. Some of the most beautiful things, some of the most highest, most fondest, best memories I have are in the church. And at the same time, some of the most painful memories I have are in the church. It just is. And let me just say this. Let me just say this. That should not be unusual. I am willing to bet, in some ways, that some of our most fondest memories, some of our best memories, in our, has come from our growing up, being a part of our family. And yet, at the same time, some of our most painful memories may be from growing up and from of our memories of our family. It goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways, that oftentimes, yes, we hurt each other. Yes, the church is not a perfect place. Yes, the church has many faults. And yes, we don't have it all together. I hope I am not sharing anything that you all don't already know. Okay? Please, do not have this idyllic picture of the church that will only be ruined by the reality of being a part of it at times. Charles Spurgeon said this, and I'm par- if you ever find a perfect church, don't go there because you'll just ruin it. right? It's just how it is. But I love the church. I cannot help myself in the fact that I love being a part of the church. And here's the thing, y'all. 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 I I get it. I I speak to all cultures here, okay, Um, in this country. Here is the thing. In the evangelical church, there are some things that have broken my heart. And let me say this, and I might get some moans. We are coming into another election year. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'll be honest with you, for many of my brothers and sisters in the evangelical church, I was not impressed with the behavior that was displayed in the last election. I'm not talking about views. It's an entirely different thing talking about behaviors i am i am brokenhearted at times to see how some of the evangelical church has i think done things and said things that have been incredibly hurtful to the witness of jesus christ um i just am i just am I'm, I'm going to share some things throughout today and for the rest of this year, quite frankly, because we're moving closer. Because I, I, I don't know about you, but I truly believe that the local church and the church in general is the hope of the world. We have the gospel. We have a role to play, brothers and sisters. And we need to play that role well. Not perfectly, but we need to play that role well. And my hope and my prayers is that as we go through this, this year and we go through this focus on the church is that we will once again reclaim that which has always been in front of us, which that has always been ours to proclaim, and that is not a political view, not a political mantra, not political action in the way that we think, but more importantly, the gospel of Jesus Christ and being Jesus in the flesh to a world that has no clue what Jesus 
believes, and more importantly, how he acts. And so this morning, are you ready? Are you glad you came? <laughs> I mean, this morning, we're going to start a series called The Seven Challenges of the Church. Because church is important. As one person said this, and, and this is an extreme statement, but I'm going to share it anyways, and I'll quantify it after I share it. You can be committed to church, but not committed to Christ. It is possible to be a part of a church and not know Jesus. It really is. It really is. But you cannot be committed to Christ and not committed to the church. That's my bias. I don't disagree with that. Here's the thing. Do you need church to come to know Jesus? Nope. Do you need church to go to heaven? Absolutely not. Do you need church to become a good person? Nope. You can do that outside of church. However, I find it extremely difficult, if not near impossible, to grow as a disciple of Jesus and as a follower of Jesus, absent my participation and membership in a church. I just don't know how one does it. I'm not saying it can't be done. I don't know how one does it. I have not seen it done well. Let me just put it to you that way. Imperfections and all. Imperfections and all. And so I just, I share that with you because without the church, I don't know how one grows as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And by the way, let me just say this about discipleship. As we, we're going to talk about Summit Group later on, which I'm very biased about as well. I'm just biased about a lot of things here at Summit Ridge. <laughs> just being open, open and honest. Discipleship is hard. Discipleship is hard. And by hard, part of discipleship, it's even at times just boring. Oh. But it's hard because guess what we are doing in discipleship? Jesus said it. We're taking up our cross daily to follow him. We are killing more of ourselves to make room for Jesus. We are recognizing in our own lives, man, I've got some work to do over here. And, 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 and that's hard work. So hard that oftentimes we just want to be like, yeah, let me, just, let me just skip that for right now. Let me just, I just want to be home on a cold, windy, blustery day here in Tucson, which is few and far between, I grant you that. It was so cold and blustery today, I didn't even ride my bike. I mean, I just, I, for the first time in a long time, I didn't ride my bike this morning. I mean, I, I, I get it. I get it. Oh, I just want to, it just, you know what, I just, I just need a break from church. See, I don't know what that means. I'll be honest with you, bless you. I don't know what that means. I honestly don't know what that means. Because discipleship is incredibly, incredibly hard work. Because we're killing off ourselves. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to die. One actor said this about death. I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> right? And it's true. It's true. So this morning, we are going to start this series, and there are challenges to being the church. Martin Luther, the founder of the Lutheran Church and the start, oftentimes considered the start, starter of the Reformation, said this, for where God built a church, there the devil would also build a chapel. In such sort is the devil always God's ape. And what he means by that is, where God offers the real thing, the devil can only offer the fake thing that looks real. Where God actually creates beauty, where God actually loves, 
The devil can only make it appear as though he is creating and as he is loving and compassionate, which he's not. We have challenges because we have an enemy who is bent on making sure that we as a church and the church in general, the big C church, doesn't succeed in its mission of bringing people to Jesus Christ. And there are ways he goes about it that perhaps we don't always realize. And today I hope that we can at least know one particular way that I think he infiltrates and tries to trip us up as we take a look at this challenge this morning. So that's where we're going. And for us this morning, as we begin this series, we are going to use as our guide through the lens of Revelation chapter 2. I can think of no better book to start the new year off than the book of Revelation. Right? Now, the good news is I'm not going to go through all of the other parts of Revelation that have caused a lot of angst and a lot of confusion. Let me just say this about Revelation. Is the seven churches to whom the book of Revelation, and by the way, it's Revelation, one Revelation, not Revelations. Revelation, one, um, that the seven churches to whom John, the apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation is writing to, these seven churches were not confused by, by this book. They knew exactly what John was talking about. It's only all, the, all of us afterwards who are confused by this book, but I guarantee you the seven churches to whom John originally wrote this book to are not confused by its message. And so therefore, we're going to be using the first part of Revelation, the letter specifically to these seven churches to look at the seven challenges that they each faced. Because here's the thing, whether you realize it or not, the seven challenges that these churches faced in many ways are the seven challenges that we as a church even face today. Maybe not all at once, but certainly I think face at one time or another. So I think it's important for us to look at the seven challenges that churches face, including our own. Are you ready? Here's challenge number one. Forgetting why we do what we do. Forgetting why we do what we do. It is a challenge to remember why we do what we do. Here's what I mean. If you have a Bible with you, let's go to Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to be reading the first seven verses of Revelation. And here is what the Apostle John writes to this church. And the first church is the church in Ephesus. And it says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who has a firm grasp on the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works as well as your labor and steadfast endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have even put to the test those who refer to themselves as apostles, but are not, and have discovered that they are indeed false. I am also aware that you have persisted steadfastly, endured much for the sake of my name, and have not grown weary. That's a lot of praise for this church, isn't it? This church in Ephesus is doing an incredible work and is doing a lot of things really, really, really well. Here's the other thing I want you to know. The seven stars that Jesus holds in his right hand represents the seven churches that John is writing to. The seven golden lampstands that Jesus is walking among is the seven golden lampstands that these churches hold being the light of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing I want to point out to you. What I find so interesting about this passage at the beginning here is that Jesus knows each of these churches by name, by deed, and the people who occupy them. He knows them intimately. Think about that for a moment. Jesus knows each and every one of his churches. I believe he knows this church. 
I believe he knows this church. I believe he knows this church really, really well, better than I do. He knows this church. That's beautiful. It doesn't matter how big a church is or how small a church is. Jesus knows each and every one of his churches, period. He knows them intimately. And he gives an incredible amount of praise to this church in Ephesus. He says, man, you have done well. You have endured well. You don't tolerate evil. You put to those to the test who claim to be apostles and find out that, in fact, they are not. All of these things, they do really, really well. In fact, if I were to probably think about how this church operates and what is the strength of this church, perhaps I might find that this church knows its Bible really well and knows its doctrine really, really, really well. It knows what it believes. It's sure about what it believes. It's really good about what it believes. And it applies what it believes doctrinally to those who are coming into the church. Now, they had every reason to be able to test what's going on here. Ephesus, at the time that John wrote this, is, on, is, is in modern-day Asia, Turkey, actually, and on the coast there. If you were to go there today, uh, due to erosion and changes there, it is actually now several miles away from the ocean, but that was not the case when it was written originally there. Ephesus was this incredibly beautiful, huge metropolis city. It was an incredibly important city in the Roman Empire. It was also known as kind of the guardian of the temple because there in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the world was the temple to Diana or Artemis, which was a goddess who was revered there in Ephesus. It was an incredibly cosmopolitan city as well. It was filled with wealth. It was, it, was just a, it was just a booming metropolis of a city. But because of the fact that it was home to this incredibly important goddess, and also, in many ways, it was home to a lot of riffraff as well. In fact, Ephesus was also known to have a quite booming um, kind of black market economy. Uh, a lot of crime was also present there as well. So this church in Ephesus had its challenges. But did you notice that its challenge was not from those who didn't know Jesus? It was from those who claimed to be there on behalf of Jesus, and they applied what they knew about the scriptures and the doctrine to determine whether or not these people were true. It's really important to realize here. Paul planted this church. He spent three years at this church, and not only that, tradition held that, that John, the Apostle John, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, after Jesus ascended in heaven, moved here and settled there, and that John ended his apostolic ministry there in Ephesus before he would be sent off to Patmos in exile. So let me just say this. John knows this church. John knows these people. He knows their strengths. He knows this. This is a church that knows its stuff. And yet, verse 4, Jesus says this. But I have this against you. You have departed from your first love. Now, that word love here at Summit Ridge, know it. Guess what that word love is? Agape, that self-sacrificial love, the kind of love that Jesus showed us that now we are called to show others. They had, they had forgotten their first love. They had forgotten their first love. In other words, this church in Ephesus, this church that knew its theology, this church that knew its doctrine, this church that followed the scriptures, this church that was very effective at applying the scriptures and doing all this kind of stuff, at the end, Jesus says, you have forgotten your first love. 
How is that possible? How is a Bible-believing, doctrinally sound, theologically grounded church able to lose its first love? How is that possible? I've got some theories. I've got some thoughts I want to share with you as to why that's possible. It's possible for a variety of reasons, but perhaps the most glaring reason is fear. The obstacles that this poor church faced, the place where this poor church was, the, the, the location where it ministered, the, the earliness of the church and it's starting out, there was a lot of reason to be fearful about what could happen, who could come in, what could happen to their fellowship, all of this kind of stuff. There were probably other factors as well, but perhaps one of the biggest ones is that of fear. And all of a sudden now we have a church here that was possibly fearful of what was being coming into their churches, that they decided overall that it would be better for us, better for us, to simply remain closed in with each other rather than to take a chance of, of welcoming in others that might infiltrate and mess us up. And while they could be doctrinally pure and while they applied that well to people who came in claiming to be apostles, claiming to be prophets, turning out not to be those things, perhaps they took it a little too far and closed themselves off to almost everyone else outside of their church walls. Fear is incredibly powerful. Fear is incredibly powerful. Not only is it an emotion, it is also a, a, a disposition. Right? For those of you who have ever owned a dog, why does a dog bite? Fear. Almost always a dog will bite out of fear. I have a dog. You know this. I've talked about my dog. My dog has anxiety issues. He does. We sometimes have to give him medication. And sometimes we have to give him CBD. Even. Um, I, I don't know. I, you know. It, yeah, I, mean, I mean, he's happier than I am. Um, <laughs> but you can just see it when he gets fearful. A dog will let you know he's fearful. How? Tuck his tail between his legs. He'll go off in a corner. He'll do everything he can to avoid you or whatever the situation is. And if you push a dog, that dog has no option but to respond by biting. I don't think that's all that different from us, honestly. When we're fearful, I think oftentimes, at least for me, when I'm fearful, the first thing I want to do is close in. I want to put up the walls. Because I'm all about making sure that I am safe. Making sure that I'm okay. And if someone pushes me to try to get out of that, I bite back. I don't literally bite them. My mom cured me of that when I was very young. She bit me once after I bit one of my, I think I bit my brother. Never bit anybody again. Um, but I, 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 I yell. I, I get angry. Fear turns into anger really easily. And I, I, I don't want to, I want to be safe. I want to be secure. I want to be those things. Who doesn't? And when I am pushed, I tend to want to bite back. 
when I think about that, I think about this church in Ephesus. It had a lot of challenges. You see, the mission of the church, does anybody know what the mission of the church is? Let me, just, let me tell you what the, I believe the mission of the church is. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus said it himself. The mission of the church is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, this is really important. This is really important. This is what Jesus says. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Hey, I've given you a really, really important mission. Go and make disciples. Go and teach them everything you have learned. Go and baptize them. Oh, and by the way, I am going with you. I am with you even until the very end of the age. That's the mission of the church, but that's not the purpose. There is something even more important that's behind that mission that makes it possible for us to do that. And perhaps that's what the church in Ephesus was forgetting. And that is the greatest commandments. To love God and to love each other. That's the source of why we go and do what we do. You see, I don't think the church in Ephesus forgot about its mission. I think it forgot about its purpose. Its mission is to make disciples, but its purpose is to love. It's to love God and love each other. And here's the thing about that, those two commandments. You can't do one without the other. You can't love God without loving others, and you can't love others without loving God. It's, they're, 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 they're intermingled. You can't do one without the other. And yet, here, perhaps, in Ephesus, this poor church, out of all of its knowing the Bible, knowing its doctrine, knowing its theology, at the end of the day, it didn't help them love God and love each other anymore. Think about that for a moment. It is absolutely possible to know your Bible inside and out, from Genesis to Maps. It is absolutely possible for you to know all the good theology that's out there, and there's a lot of good theology. It is possible for you to know all the doctrine that there is to know. And by the way, there's a lot of doctrine to know. You can all know the fancy theological terms that I paid a lot of money to learn. <laughs> that I paid a lot of money to learn. Soteriology, ooh, pneumatology, ecclesiology, all of those kinds of things. To know all those fancy words and, and not in any way, grow closer to loving God or loving others. I'm not saying you shouldn't know those things. You need to. But if it doesn't help us to be better at loving others and loving Jesus, then we studied it for the wrong reasons. I don't want to just be a theologically grounded church in Jesus Christ. I want to be that, but that's not the only thing I want to be. I don't want to just be a church that knows our Bible so well we can quote it on a snap of our fingers. I don't want to be a church that knows doctrine backwards and forwards that we can counteract any theological argument that might happen and we can correct people and we're like, yes, I want to be a church that is known as loving Jesus and loving others. That's what I want to be. That's what I want to be. And this church in Ephesus struggled with that. But here's the thing. Jesus offers a solution. He says this in verse 5. Therefore, remember from what high state you have fallen and repent. 
can repent. Remember what high state you have fallen and repent. Do the deeds you did at first. Love that. Do the deeds. Don't learn more. Go and do. By the way, let me just say this. I believe as Christians, perhaps at times, if not for many of us, we are educated way beyond our level of discipline. You know what I mean by that? Is that we know more than we can put into practice. And perhaps that was the problem here in Ephesus. So Jesus says this, not that you shouldn't learn, but more importantly, go and do the deeds you did at first. I wonder what those deeds were. Well, I have an idea. They love people. They serve people. They help people. They went out there and offered themselves to others in the name of Jesus. And he says this, and this is, this is hard to hear. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That is, if you do not repent. Churches close all the time. They do. And there are theories as to why churches close. Maybe we just uh, planted in the wrong area. I doubt that. I understand. Maybe we uh, didn't have the right resources at the right time. Possible. Maybe it just wasn't meant to be. Yeah, that could be. Or maybe there's another reason that Jesus said you're done. That Jesus said you're done. You're a church that perhaps has fulfilled its mission, or maybe you're a church that has refused to repent, that has lost its way, that has forgotten why it does what it does. And therefore, Jesus snuffs out the lampstand. Sometimes that's possible. I don't know the reasons why churches close. I don't know. It's only speculation. But I know one of the reasons, possibly, is Jesus took it out. Jesus took it out. Verse 6 says this, but you do have this going for you. You hate what the Nicolaitans practice and practice, practices I also hate. And it says, the one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will permit him to eat from the tree of life, that is, in the paradise of God. It's interesting that Jesus calls out the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were followers of Nicholas, who was ironically one of the seven deacons who was appointed by the apostles in Acts to care for the widows, the Greek widows. But out of that came a belief among those Christians, most likely accredited to Nicholas, as they were called Nicolaitans, who compromised their faith by practicing immorality and idolatry to avoid persecution and to indulge their most winsome desires. They began to do things for the wrong reasons, and because of this sect that had infiltrated them, they began not to trust in outsiders. The Ephesians began to not trust outsiders and those coming into the church. They may have even become very cold towards those who were coming in from the outside and did everything out of protection. Everyone was suspect. Sometimes that can happen. But did you catch how perhaps Satan infiltrates the church? I think sometimes as Christians, as evangelical Christians, we're concerned about those idolaters. We're concerned about those adulterers. We're concerned about those drug dealers and those, dare I say, even liberals. Oh my gosh, and their <laughs> liberal theology and their liberal views. We're concerned about those pinko commies. I'm saying it. We're concerned. 
about all of those, those, you know, sexually perverse people, the homosexuals, the bisexuals, the pansexuals, whatever you want to call them. We're concerned about wokeism. Ooh. We're concerned about all that stuff. Do you know what, do you know what Satan is? He's too smart for that. He says, really? If someone like that was coming into your church, you see him a mile away and you would know how to handle it. No, 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 no. You know what takes out churches and most of the time the problems in churches that are written in the New Testament that Paul addresses are not forces on the outside, it's those on the in. I have had the wonderful opportunity. I understand why Jesus spent a lot of time with sinners. Sometimes they're a lot better than spending time with Christians. <laughs> because at least they know their faults and they're honest about it. And at least they're honest about who they are. I think sometimes as Christians, and I get it, we've created a culture where honesty is hard and we've got to put up this front that says, I am perfect. Sorry, Wheezy. <laughs> You're not. <laughs> where we put up this front that says, I'm good. Where we put up this front and says, I've got it all under control where we put up a front that says, I've got it all handled because I have Jesus on my side. That's a cop-out in some ways. I think we want to believe it. I understand we want to believe that. I understand we hope for it. But you know what? We need each other. And part of needing each other is just being honest with each other. At times, and just saying, you know what? I don't have it all together. There are sometimes people come to me with a really good situation, a really good question, and I could make up a really good theological response. But sometimes I just got to look them in the eyes and say, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I do know is let's maybe pray and maybe God will give us an answer. As your pastor, you know this. I don't have it all together. As your pastor, you know I need help just as much as you do. As your pastor, I, I, I hope that at least when I come to these points of, of conflict and these points of hardship and these points of heartache, that instead of understanding, wow, Dan, you're not who I thought you were. You're right. But maybe you might see is that how I'm hopefully handling this is maybe a model. Maybe it's not. Of being appropriately honest, vulnerable, asking God for forgiveness. I think for us, Oftentimes we look at what the world is like out there and we say that can never be infiltrated in here. Guess what? It already is. How do I know that? Because we're all here. We brought it in with us. The biggest threat to the church isn't those that we think is the threat to the church. The biggest threat to the church are those who claim to know Jesus, claim to speak on behalf of Jesus, claim to be apostles and prophets in Jesus' name, and in the end, they turn out to be false but we fall for their theology nonetheless. And we give them credence. There is one person in the evangelical world who is prominent and says unbelievably awful things. That person doesn't even have a theology, theo, theological degree, never mind a bachelor's degree, has no training in theology whatsoever. And thousands of Christians follow this person. I think sometimes we would do well to read more of the Bible and less 
of watching whatever news program we would like to watch to get our view of the world. I think we would do well sometimes to actually go out there and actually do what Jesus says and to actually serve people and to love on people. Yeah, but Dan, it's a risk. Yeah, it's a risk. But guess what? Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you. By the way, the Bible says don't, do not fear over 300 times. I think there's a reason why. It says, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. As a church, the best way we can counteract us not to forget why we do what we do is for us to serve others and to say and pray, Jesus, please help me to love these people as you love them. Jesus, please help me to see these people the way that you see them. And to take a chance and to take a risk of continuing to go out there and serve, of continuing to go out there and give of our time, of our money, of, of our resources, and serving others with, by the way, no expectation that they give us anything in return. To go and serve. Why? Because Jesus said, love me and love others. Love me as I have loved you. And by the way, that's a really, really tall task for someone who gave his very life for us. Didn't hold back anything. He calls us to do the same. The challenge for us, church, I believe here at Summit Ridge, as it is for any church, I believe, is let us not forget why we do what we do. Serving is hard. It's inconvenient. It costs time and money and resources. And it, it just loving people is a messy, messy business. And I can't think of a better way of being reminded why we do what we do than in serving others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the late theologian and Lutheran pastor who was martyred for his faith in Nazi Germany, said this, the church is the church only when it exists for others. William Tyndale, a theologian, said this, the church is the one institution that exists for those outside it. So here's a question for us to ponder this morning. What would Jesus say to us here at Summit Ridge? What would he praise? Hey, Summit Ridge, you're doing this so well. I love that you do this. I love that you do that. But I have this one thing. I have this one thing. As we move into 2024, and all of the opportunities, I call them opportunities, we might see them as challenges based on what we are going to be going through as a country and what maybe we already are starting to go through. What an opportunity for us to once again remember why we do what we do. It's because we want to love Jesus and we want to love others. What an opportunity for us this coming year for us to go and serve those whom, by the way, we probably wouldn't ever even consider serving. But because God loves them, we love them. The biggest threat, church, is the church. The biggest threat, I think, to the church is the church. So let Jesus deal with that. And let us deal with it as it, as it needs to be. But let us not, in dealing with those things, close ourselves off to a world out there that Jesus loves. To people that Jesus loves. 
let us serve boldly. Let us love boldly. We have a saying here at Summit Ridge that's grammatically incorrect. I get it. Because the Greek word is a noun, but we say it anyways. Agape is a verb. We write it on our coffee mugs, which by the way, if you're a visitor, take a coffee mug this morning. We'll get more. Agape is a verb. We take it seriously. Agape is also a person. It's Jesus. It's that person whom you wouldn't give time to. That's love. It's, it's the person who is deep in sin and still needs help. That's love. Church, let us not forget our first love. As we move into 2024, let's continue to serve boldly. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I know you have us here for a reason. Jesus, we are yours. I'm grateful that you know us. I'm grateful that you know every single person in this room and who's joining us online, Jesus. I am grateful that we get to minister to the people here in this area and beyond. Jesus, please help us to love the way that you love. I pray, Jesus, for every single one of us and for us as a church in general. Help us to see the people that we may encounter even today the way that you see them. And help us to love those people that we encounter today the way that you love them. Help us, Jesus, to encounter even those that we wouldn't give a time of day to because of the differences that we may have with them, because of the choices that they have made. Help us, nonetheless, nonetheless Jesus, to love them because you love them. May we serve boldly, Jesus. And in doing so, may we never forget why we do what we do. Why we do what we do. To love you and to love others. Amen.